Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. Um, yeah, we were just... Uh, we broke the rule, but we kind of chatted for five minutes before the podcast. Like <laughs> 20, so. 20 minutes before. Yeah. But you one of the things it, yeah. that surprises me is that uh, audio technology is still too complicated for people to just record a podcast on AirPods and talk to each other, and it works. Like, yeah, I mean, I think it's not even that. Like, your AirPods and all that is focused on convenience over quality, right? So, you know. Yeah, something about the, 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 the Bluetooth... The, the bandwidth of Bluetooth and, and audio going in and out is, is bad. So that, yeah. that's part of the problem. And so the, the context people are missing because we're just like, you know, two old men or two old women just let, go right into it <laughs> is that Raphael's traveling to the Netherlands to look at some new production work and visit some friends. And he, he doesn't like to he, he likes to pack light and doesn't want to pack his microphone. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I, I keep us a cache of clothing at my parents, so I hardly have to bring anything. But uh, this mic that I have now comes with a has a big arm and a weight to keep it on the desk, so it's that this would be half the weight of my luggage. Yeah, I I don't know. Like that's why I got the. I again, I recommend the mic I have, the the Shure mic that I have. The MV5. Uh, yeah, the MV5. Yeah. <laughs> Let's. Yeah. In the show notes, there's an affiliate link. That's our new uh, revenue yeah. strategy. Um, but 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 like, in a, in a, in a, the bigger picture, I'm surprised that uh, YouTubing seems to have gotten easier. Mm-hmm. Or, like the way TikTok works, but podcasting is still. There's a barrier of entry, but which, you can plug a nice mic into your phone, like this mic that I have. You can plug it into your phone and record high quality audio. I know, but who brings a mic? It's not as simple as TikTok, where you just. I see. Like video on phones has gotten a lot better, but have microphones got better? Not yeah. really. And and yeah. that's that's maybe what I'm trying to say. I, I think that new 16 inch MacBook Pro is supposed to have pretty good. But for example, if you would record a podcast on a laptop. With the speakers, not with headphones, mm-hmm. you would hear double voices and all kinds of problems. So yeah, I've done a few guest appearance on appearances on podcasts over the last few weeks, and then like I I have my pro setup all ready to go. They don't even like the the other get, the hosts are never like yeah you should have this setup and stuff. And then I'm like oh I don't have my pop filter today. I'm so sorry. And they're like <laughs> they're like what <laughs> we're not used to this level of. So I think yeah, like yeah. you know for interview podcasts, there's a lot of people that are just talking on the phone, you know, and it's kind of okay. Yeah. But, but it's kind of I, I've noticed uh, in podcasts with like phone audio quality, it's it, you drift off easier mm-hmm. when it's more clear. So it's yeah. uh, <clears throat> people love that rich, soothing, full spectrum audio. <laughs> yeah, if, if only we had those rich, soothing voices. But uh, well, I had one person on uh, Twitter reach out and with and said I, I had a sort of ASMR voice, which is the first time I'd ever heard that because I think I have like a very nasally annoying. Uh, voice, but I do speak I in these whisper there's tones. A, there's a crackle in your voice that reminds me of a fireplace. <laughs> that's what they said. There was like crackling. In it. Yeah, okay. Th- that's what they said. Yeah, they. they yeah. It was. A, it was a video of like someone crunching leaves or crunching. Plants. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you sound a bit like a like you're a smoker, not that long, but you've smoked for a good fifteen years or something. You know what it is? I have a very weak voice, and so. And I talk a lot. And so it, it's always, oh. so there's a bit of a voice fry there that's not like a affectation. Like yeah. I'm not from, you know, the Valley or New York suburbs or something like that. Like, 
it's just um it's just wear and tear through sheer enthusiasm of life <laughs> guys <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah actually when Let's i perform my, when i perform my videos i can only do like now like three or four takes before i actually can't speak and i'm like oh man yeah. i have to learn to use my diaphragm but it is what it is okay rushmore okay yeah so yeah, we're still reviewing movies, people, <laughs> and uh, we wanted to do a comedy. And then for me, um, Raf and I have both been talking about how you know different movies have. Uh, yeah, the favorite. movies I suggest are too disturbing, so we couldn't do them. Well, like movies that shaped us, you know. And I think actually this yeah. is why we, the good context for us to eventually go down the deep dark cavern that is Raphael's psychology. But, <laughs> but like my own, a lot of times movies will shape your personality and might impact your whole life and you know as we were talking about that in comedies um for me like i've referenced one film and this is not a great film uh necessarily in the canon of all films or auteur filmmaking well the yeah the one thing that shocked me about this is that i always saw the way you make film yeah whether you call it film or not is so new and untraditional and unretro yeah like the the way you approach it is just where most people would be like, oh, webcams are ugly and VR software is ugly. And you're like, Let, let's embrace the time we live in. Yeah. And this movie is the exact opposite. It's like, oh, I wish everything was as nice as back then. So, yeah. So that's why the context is super important. So this movie, Rushmore by Wes Anderson, it came out in 1998. In 1998, I was 18 years old. This movie is about a high school student who's about 16 or 17. I think he's 17 years old in the film. And I think the actor is 17 and the role, the character is supposed to be 15. Right. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's 15. And it's play, he's played by Jason Schwartzman. They took yeah, a which year, Which is a step actually. up from those, those 80s high school movies where the actors are 38. Or <laughs> like true. Revenge of the Nerds and the jocks are like full yeah. grown men. And it took, uh, now this is also like Wes Anderson's kind of breakthrough movie. So Wes Anderson had one movie before this that most people didn't see called Bottle Rocket. I actually did see it. Um, and then Rushmore came along and Rushmore was very popular the year it came out. I can remember everyone went and saw it. Um, and I went and saw it with my whole high school group of friends, right? Which is like, again, going to the movies, you know, as a just as a, a social or cultural ritual, it's also important to know who you go to the movies with, right? Like, so, like, last night I went and saw Emma, which has just come out. And, of course, I went with Kristen, who's basically Emma. And then, like, in the audience, I remarked, because she went into the theater before me, and it was all women with curly red hair. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, Kristen, I don't know. I can't find you. What's going on here? It's like a white power gathering. Yeah, it was all white women in their, like, you know... You know, at all ages, but like a lot of older white women <laughs> and their husbands who have been dragged along. <laughs> and they're all carrying books in their bag. And Yeah, it was an, it was actually kind of an awesome movie and I recommend it. But um, regardless, uh, so this movie was like a breakout. I went with my high school friends. It's about um, me, basically. So I, I imagine a young me. I like felt completely misunderstood. Um, I like was failing in school. I let, I let, I really like this girl. Really, we, you were I, failing. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I was like, I was Max Fisher. So I have, I would have like, you know, I'd fail my math, all my math exams. I was like, but I was part of all these clubs and I was entertaining people and I was actually already running my own businesses. Oh. So as an entre- young entrepreneur, yeah, yeah. 
And I was like, what the hell? Like, why can't I do well in school? And I would participate really like a lot in class and then get zero for participation. And I'd be like, what? I ran that class. <laughs> you know, like, I yeah. I really thought a lot of myself and everything was about being perf- so the, like the, an the, adult. The school system is more about filling out forms than being good with people. Yeah, well, just so when I saw this film, and there's so much to get into that's related to my own identity. So this is a very indulgent <laughs> thing. But when I saw it, yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, my God. Like someone I, I, understands me. <laughs> yeah, that maybe that's it. my high school is so, such a different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the whole concept of extracurricular activities and uh, organizing things and it doesn't. I I don't remember it existing in the Netherlands. Like the, there's no club for this and a club for that. It's like three o'clock and you go home. Well, to be honest, I wasn't really part of clubs so much as like I would just. I started a lot of things, so I would like not do official clubs like at the school, but I would, I, st- I started designing skins. I became like a world famous skin designer for yeah, MP3 yeah. players. I just did a podcast on that actually, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or I started, a, I started a graphic design business. I was an art director. My first job was as an art director when I was 16. So I had never had any other job. And then I was like, my first job was as an art director. Um, mm. And so I just like, and I would go to trade conferences and learn like, hey, what's the latest in video production and digital technology? And I would, you know, I worked in my dad's graphic design agency. So I was like a, kind of a, a spoiled kid. Not not like, like I actually did have a silver spoon in my mouth where Max Fisher, the lead character in this movie, is like kind of from a poorer background. But I was very obsessed with being an adult and acting in adult ways from like a very young age. And so that meant like for me, it was this entrepreneurialism or like the idea of starting but, things. Yeah. The, the thing, <clears throat> there's a couple of things that's stood out for me in this film. This is not a film I would naturally, I'm not naturally drawn to, and there's a lot of things that are annoying to me, especially formally. Like I, I, I hate, <laughs> hate the compositions, the photography. I, I thought I we'd talk so about much. that. Yeah, yeah. So th- that's yeah, something like, that... Every face is in the middle of the frame, mm-hmm. and then there's a long shot of someone walking on the sidewalk, and the camera doesn't move, and it's like a very non-radical version of French New Wave, and it, it, I can't get past that. But that being said... I, the thing I wanted to talk about is <laughs> American adolescence. Like it seems, it seems like three quarters of pop culture are about coming of age. Yeah. Like songs, movies, and I don't think. Why do you say that's American that, though? I mean, because if you read European literature, very few things are about teenage years. Uh-huh. It's, they don't have this obsession. I think you're so deep in it that you think that's life. Like mm-hmm. life, it, I feel like. It, for Americans, you either have a horrible time in high school yeah. and you can't wait to get out and then you flourish, or you're the superstar of the football team and the rest of your life you're like, man, that was cool. Right. Like the, and the, the rest of your life you have a shitty job. <clears throat> yeah. The culmination of your life is you get married, right? That's American culture, right? After that. Yeah. It's but just then like, they get married at 18 or something. So yeah. it's, it's, I, I think maybe in the Netherlands there's more of a uh, glorification of the college years mm-hmm. more than high school years. But even that, I, uh, if you if you read, like if you name name, uh, name some fancy, fancy famous Russian novels or English novels, or, or I don't think they're about high school. Uh, like yeah. War and Peace, or or like uh, it, it, like when you think of, I don't know. It, it's it, I remember Homer, seeing Homer uh, or something like that. Homer, like the yeah, Odyssey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but like if if you. I was on an airplane, and sometimes you get so bored, you even watch the Lady Gaga documentary. Mm-hmm. 
So I watched 10 minutes of that. And like the first 10 minutes, she's behind the mirror getting ready for the concert. And she's like, I'm still that little girl in middle school. And it's like, why do you care so much about middle school? Mm. What, what's this fascination with it? It's like, well, it's not that many songs about diapers. I don't know. I was traumatized because I was in diapers. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, another perspective on this film would be like, this is also, by the way, when Bill Murray returned to cinema. So Bill Murray had been kind of like out of film for a few years. And then he was recast in this film um, as like melon for this, like this melancholy role of like an aging man. And again, this would be like, through your lens. Yeah, he's great. He's always great. And he, he has this great physical comedy and these facial expressions. Yeah, but, then, but Bill Murray is now known for coming-of-age stories among people who are senior citizens, right? So it's like, you know, <laughs> and it's a direct response to the, the point you're making, which is, you know, after you've come of age, there's this gap of 30 years, and then you're Bill Murray. And now what are you going to do, right? And it's like a re-come of age, uh, find, yeah. you know, who you are in the second or third or fourth stage of life. So... I love Bill Murray you, in this movie. It, for that oh, reason, sorry, like no, no, no. I, I, I want to hear what you said. Had to say. No, was was high school? Uh, <clears throat> how how many students were in your high school? Um, around fifteen hundred in the larger school, but then I was part of a niche French school inside <laughs> the larger school. Okay. Again, to the Max Fisher point, is like I go to the big high school, but I only do my classes in French and. <laughs> With a smaller group and, of and people. was there a division of uh, categories of people? Like there was a group of stoners, and then there's a group of surfers, and then like the, the classic high school click and then kind a of thing. Group of of jocks, and what, is it the same as in the U.S.? Um, in Canada, not so much. Uh, a little bit though, because I mean, I think so. To but I went to a downtown school in Toronto, so it was very diverse. Like. And when okay. I say diverse, it actually wasn't that diverse. It was 90% uh, people from Hong Kong because that was the latest immigration wave. So mostly Asian high school. Um, and um, yeah, I think I didn't... But did you feel like you, you had... Because one thing I liked about high school is that I had friends with all kinds of interests that are still friends today. And like when you're older... As an artist, it's hard to make friends who are a lawyer or a scientist or a journalist. Like you, mm -hmm. you, you tend to find people with the same work. Yeah, my friends were like and kind in of high a, school. Yeah, were people who listened to cool music and were kind of like the outsider hippies. That was like my friend group. Yeah, but still, like a lot of those people ended up becoming either an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor <clears> or <throat> other things. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's something that is, is harder to meet when you're older. So that's the part of high school that I liked. But yeah, yeah. If, watching high school movies in uh, U.S. high school movies like Mean Girls and stuff like that, it seems uh, the divisions are already made in high school, and there's no crossover. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess there was some of that. I was the runt in my group, so I never felt like I belonged in high school. And again, just kind of like Max Fisher, I know I didn't really. I, it's kind of that's why it's so much part of my identity. And I thought you would have a similar identity problem. A lot of artists do, which is that like. A, it wasn't an art school that I was at. So if you're an artist at a non-art school, the same way like Max Fisher's at that public school and he's like, he asked to make a speech. I, you know, I might do not the same thing, but I would do something just as bizarre. Like I, you know, I might start a business or I, I have to go to this business meeting. I'm sorry, I can't make the, you know, to class this afternoon. And um, so that kind of thing um, made you feel like an outsider and people didn't get it. And I would, and studying for school seemed completely useless to me like 
In fact, my teachers told me I didn't belong in school. They're like, you don't belong here. Hmm. You're, you know, you're not good enough. And so I was always just like, school is an okay. inconvenience that gets in the way of my real yeah. life. And my real life exists like outside of this place. I, but, I think my, my high school, I had one great art teacher who also did some extra classes outside of, uh, and I have a lot of great friends from high school that I still see regularly. So maybe I was just lucky with a nice high school and nice mix of people. But mm -hmm. the 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 academic part or the classes and the learning, I, I was always pretty efficient. That didn't take that much time, and then I just yeah. had a lot of time for drawing. And uh, I, I remember yeah. that well. That idea of being an outsider, I feel much more of an outsider now than when I was in high school. I felt a lot more camaraderie and and mm. um, togetherness and just seeing people often and i think now that i i work from home yeah uh i'm kind of a recluse and i i have to force myself or i have to email people to see people etc mm -hmm. uh so high school there's this natural you're just forced to talk to people all day and crack jokes and all that stuff and i i th but i think i always took pride in uh having different interests than other people, like knowing music mm. that other people don't know, addressing in a way that, but that didn't make me feel like an outsider. It's just like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too. Um, cause I last week, so this film's like good in context cause, um, or rather this week I was in, um, Palo Alto just outside San Francisco where Google is headquartered and, you know, right in this kind of like tech scene right near Google's campuses. So I went, I was there to visit, um, this, uh, teacher, uh, who runs uh, like a journalism program at a high school, public high school. And this journalism program um, is now the like top program in the United States. This woman's 80 years old and her nickname is Waj, uh, Esther, Esther Waj. Her last name is, which, I can't pronounce it, but anyway, so everyone shortens it to Waj. And um, she has this radical... Uh, way of teaching or what you know was once radical but I think it still is in the public school system which is that she doesn't teach the class the class is given like a project um, and in this case she gives them several publications and then there's job assignments and people get like elected into different roles like chief editor writer copy editor um, design and then over the course of the year they simply produce publications and they produce them over and over again and she just sets the deadlines that's all she does as a teacher is set the publication deadlines and they the kids learn from doing the publication um and from the mm. situations they get themselves into and covering stories and things like this and so the the whole classroom is completely self-managed and self-run and i went and visited the class and you know, we came in and the kids were all like at the computers and like kind of leaning on each other's desks. And there were, there were definitely the cool kids and the uncool kids. But then like we came in and like almost like a as a show of like how confident they were in the system, they turned the music up. <laughs> so they were playing loud hip hop. But then we came in and they turned it up even louder and all laughed. <laughs> it's like, but how, how does it's that like, work if you if you want to do something else than uh, editorial interests? Well, this is just this one, this program. So they have other classes okay. in math and science that are not like that. But this program yeah. is like, and it's just very successful. It, it's, yeah. it reminds me a little bit. I went to Montessori school mm -hmm. for primary school and the high school technically was also Montessori school. So it, it was a lot of, here's the project, go figure it out on your own time and not the classic uh, lecture and then do your homework. Yeah. 
But what's interesting yeah. in this case is that these kids tend to really excel and um, and the schools won, like the actual publications that they put out win all the awards. Like I was talking to one of them and it's like, yeah, last year we went to the award ceremony and like we didn't have room in our luggage for the, all the awards. So they had to send them <laughs> in a separate crate. And I was like, it's so ridiculous. I, right? I find it so often now the things you hear about that are obviously way better and you're like, why don't we just do this everywhere? Then? Well, this is the crazy thing. So this woman, um, she like helped uh, Google get started by hosting like uh, Larry and Sergey in her garage and her daughter ended up marrying Sergey Brin. <laughs> Her daughter, is she by the, the YouTube CEO? Guy, uh, woman? So, so her daughter is the CEO of YouTube, but her other daughter yeah. is the one who married uh, Sergey, and he, she's uh, the CEO okay. of Twenty Three and Me. So she's <laughs> she's raised all these like CEO <laughs> daughters, and it's just like it's so b- bizarre, like the world she lives in. So she's also like apparently like a billionaire because she like helped start Google, and when famously when Sheryl Sandberg took over Facebook. She, Cheryl Sandberg came and spent a month in Waj's classroom just to study how the classroom was organized so that they could model how Facebook was organized after this classroom. So the same thing. The cringy, I, yeah, yeah. The cringy thing is that it sounds like, oh, this is such a wonderful way of teaching and it's yeah. more open-minded. And, and then what it ends up is like, how can we crush the competition and you just become a more efficient Wall Street? Well, totally. So, yeah. So Google, Facebook, Apple, like Steve Jobs's daughter, um, Lisa, uh, she was also in Waj's uh, classroom. And she told me stories about like Steve Jobs coming in and like without announcing or even setting up an appointment, he'd just walk into the classroom and start asking her questions. <laughs> <laughs> but like that's honestly also how it's set up. Like people come and go out of this classroom more like a business. Anyway, so yeah. it really inspired almost all of Silicon Valley. And so this woman's also now a billionaire and has this huge like thing. But like, yeah, it's but, this weird, it's this weird uh, sort of uh, Frankenstein monster of hippie culture and Wall Street. Well, yeah, like, but in this movie, because it, con- we wouldn't be talking of, you know, about it, we, we wouldn't be talking about this classroom unless there were measured results like awards or money. <clears throat> well, what, res- what resonated with me in context of this movie is the act of performing as an adult where do you draw this line right so in high school I was really miserable because people treated me like a child and Max Fisher in this movie is like I'm not a child like I can I can date this older woman even right my teacher Olivia Williams um and stop treating me like a child I had a mother who who said who who never talked to me in baby talk she always talked to me in like as if I was like a member of her staff now Whatever that did for like my feelings of love and affection, which I, I've received very little from my mom outside of encouragement uh, for a job well done, um, I always felt like an adult from the youngest age, from like the age of six, and that's the same way this school is set up. And that's the like the lead character in this movie. And this is my thesis for like the movie as a cultural object is like a lot of kids feel like they're trapped in these like kid scenarios. And then we never give them access. We we like there's like this line where we're like, okay, now you have access to the adult world, and that line sometimes you know ends up being now you have access to like a, a shitty job, right? Um, versus being in control. And what I and when I saw this movie as a young adult, anyway, it was influential because I was like, I can just start things. I can just do whatever I want, you know. So it was it was kind of really um, I don't know. It was special in that way for me. That's what I I heard that from different. American friends that they saw this movie and they're like, oh, I want to lead a more creative life. And uh, it was encouraging in that way. Really? Which um, which is funny in a way because it's this, 
it's a very middle brow kind of creativity. Sure. It's not really it's not really uh, like stuff for Comic Con, and it's not really stuff <laughs> for the Guggenheim Museum. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 this Instagram creativity that, that I was thinking of like writing poetry and then taking a picture of your desk and yeah. Oh, I had a but, good day today. But this is all before. This is before all of that, right? And even back yeah, then, yeah. But the like, movie the movie feels very Instagrammy. Yeah, for sure. But even back yeah. then, obviously, like I was more into electronic music than, you know, the soundtrack of this movie is something else we're going to discuss. But like I was more in, I thought I was more way more avant-garde than Max Fisher. It was just like the premise or the feeling that Max Fisher had of being yeah. an adult in a child's well, world. I, you know? I think the topic of retro, we, we talked about it uh, in the movie Mandy. Mm-hmm. And um, that the, there's nothing wrong with retro per se. I think I'm, I'm a huge fan of David Lynch, and he uses this weird 50s reverb guitar to create a strange atmosphere. But I think he's playing with the idea of, of the 50s in our minds feeling as a very safe time and then creating that atmosphere and then delving into the psyche and that behind all that safety there's even worse things. Maybe in a similar way how Paul McCarthy takes American icons like ketchup and turns it into something terrible mm-hmm. uh so well that's the, interesting yeah. to me but just yeah. just to play the kinks because it's just you know he's in high school and let's play some music from the 60s and wear 70s velvet suits and um uh, I, 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 no I no, really no you're making a, a good point about this film though that we haven't really like fully massaged which is that the particular aesthetic that it produces is more about um there's a certain like um, overproduction that Wes Anderson became more and more famous for, and is begins is becomes evident in this film that eventually ends yeah, up. Yeah, and he even moved to animation where that's uh, he has even more. There's no other way than yeah. yeah, yeah. And the and the type of control he's seeking seems to be control to make the cliches even more um, apparent. Like every shot is like chock a block full of decisions that you should kind of do one of these kind of. <laughs> like kind of nose laughs at like I can't believe he got that into the shot and it's also like overcomposed in a way maybe like a Gregory Crutzen photo photo is like where it's like every light lighting decision like is there for an explicit reason like everything is so explicit but also it, it's also like naive creativity so you learn yeah. in photo class don't, don't put your subject in the middle of the frame that's boring yeah and then he does so it, but he does that it's on the, purpose obviously like, yeah it's the equivalent of taking pictures of your feet at the beach and like with the ocean in the background the way i read it though is as visual puns so he's just it's like because he's, he's a comic filmmaker right so it's like you know if you talk to um you know someone who loves puns that's like a writer they'll write a sentence that makes them laugh right and so very much Wes Anderson's making movies that visually make him laugh I think this is what I think anyway when I watch it and they're like puns they're bad jokes over like stacked on top of one another to the point where you get in some cases like I think people refer to the Royal Tenenbaums as probably his greatest work right the movie that came after this and the Royal Tenenbaums becomes like so much um, a joke inside of a joke, like just a pun about um, visual culture uh, that, you know, it's kind of, but, it's, but we, yeah, it's it, cute it's also, in, a, in, a, it, in a disgusting it predates, way. It predates, in the Lower East Side now where I live, there's a lot of pencil stores for some reason. So mm-hmm. it's a store full of special pencils from around the world and they have like rare French pencils and rare Japanese pencils and cute stationary paper. And you have to see that in the context of the digital age, because 
And this predates that, but it really, all these stores look like they're a set of a Wes Anderson movie. Mm-hmm. It's like a, old school desks and, and everything's super cute. And there's uh, uh, something so disturbing to, about that to me. Like there's something very wrong, but I, can, it, I was watching the movie and I'm like, there's something very wrong I, with this, but I, I can't, I I, I can't I can articulate it. I can tell you what it is because he got into trouble for it in um, his recent movie about like the dog, island of the dog stuff. Which is that it's like appropriation, right? So he he's robbing references. It's very much like a Pinterest board, right? Where he's but, like, but, "Here's but the African." Why is it okay when Why is it okay when David Lynch does it, and not when Wes Anderson does it? Yeah. Why, th- why does it not? Have you seen like a good example? Maybe is Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm. Did you see that movie? Yeah, of course, it's classic. Yeah, and so it it starts with the white picket fence, and the guy gets a heart attack, and the beautiful flowers, and you hear the. 50s song blue velvet mm-hmm. um and so it has this similar supercomposed feeling uh yeah but the, if, the, yeah. the main character drives an old american car and so i you know i i wasn't like i said my first job was as an art director so like my whole life really is about this kind of challenge which is like when you're when you work as an art director you pull together usually like when you're starting your work you pull together references so you'll pull references from like, hey, you know, you'll put together what's like a, called a mood board, right? And different people do it in different ways, but, you know, in, in digital times. But in the in the old days, you would like actually put up all of your images on a wall, right? Because you're trying to evoke an emotion with these references. And, the, and what's interesting just for point of cultural discussion is like, you're trying to evoke an emotion based on what has already been evoked. <laughs> you know, it's like... Well, you know, like yeah, like photos of Mount Rushmore. Well, that's Rushmore. one way of doing it. Huh? It's not. It, I know. It's just. I'm just if, saying. If it's you go a see, uh, if you go see a Werner Herzog film, you don't imagine him having a mood board. <laughs> well, but he's a different kind of director. I'm just saying, like the Wes yeah. Anderson kind of it is like the. Yeah, yeah but my you, question you is, like why why don't right? I feel the cringe when I watch David Lynch? Because it's do feel like, the com- cringe. because it's commercial photography. Like, and he's referencing. I think anyway, like he's referencing that type of thing that you would see. You would see a television commercial that looked like this. So the visual culture that he's referencing is the overcomposed. And I'm not, I don't think he's doing it in a critical way. I think it's just simply like that is, he set the tone for that that's allowable in film. So like film would have been, there's avant-garde film, there's commercial film. And then Wes Anderson comes along and says, actually, there's something in between. There's avant-garde commercial mm. film. And he get the, and they had this incredible commercial success off of you know this quirky thing it like by the way disney produced this movie which also i find really interesting right because if you think of disney it's really about the craft and like attention to detail on the image um and 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 it was a surprise success actually um but they went to he went to extreme lengths in terms of the direct the direction so like jason schwartzman he took a year to cast the role one whole year to find Jason, uh, and they were going to cancel the movie. Yeah, if they I'm not arguing that the, the film is not well made. That's uh, no, 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 that's, no, no, no. I know, but I think yeah. it's it's just like this is why, why I thought it was an interesting no, film it, for it, us to it's discuss. It's obvious that everything is thought out in this film. It's 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 not a like Gonzo journalism, like a Hunter Thompson. You go somewhere and you mess everything up and see what happens. That this is not a stream of consciousness. Wild. Uh, but I would. That's what, and that's why I wouldn't. This is the opposite of that. I, it's not like the film I would make. But then I realized that that did become like you said earlier the Instagram kind of 
or Instagrammable kind of middle brow look. Like yeah. the look itself, it, this I was, is it. I was having lunch by myself and then it was two people next to me and I was listening to their conversation and they were both Instagram stars that, that decided to meet <laughs> up. But they, they hadn't met each other before. So it's like, oh, it's amazing. I just happened to be in New York. And then she's like, could you make a drawing? And then she was live filming it and going like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is so creative. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> And I, I'm happy for them that the things are going well. And Isn't that uh, how it is when they, we they, when we meet for coffee? That's that's what you and I. Yeah, <laughs> but we're not live filming it and being like, "Hey, hey guys, I'm on YouTube." Yeah. Uh, so, and I'm I'm definitely for. It, it seems to me the end result of uh, of ideal societies that everyone could follow their interests. Uh, and so even the middle brow should be able to follow their interest. It's just I tend to like either really dumb action movies from the 80s and mm-hmm. that are ridiculous and that are very badly acted and there's plot holes and or a more difficult. I don't know. I have, I have a problem with this I mean, middle territory. I know. I mean, my feeling is when you say middle brow, what you're saying is like, this isn't particularly smart. It's just it just looks good. It's suburban. It's yeah. suburban. Okay. That's how it feels. <laughs> um, and for me, there's well, something it, really, it, really like it, again. If I saw this movie today, I probably wouldn't respond to the way I did when because it was like well, a the, movie if you the saw this, time. if this movie broke out today, people would be like, "Oh, this is like the Instagram movie." Well, here's another. Here's another. Like, let's throw Sofia Coppola into the mix. So. Wes Anderson. Yeah, they're both part of the same team. So, if, yeah, it's a very similar look and feel. I mean, if you see Virgin Suicides, which came out just after this movie, or not that long after, it's not that different um, in terms mm-hmm. of the comic style. like the Maybe visual. more from the female point of view, and, and this one's from the male point of view. Sure, from a narrative standpoint, but I'm just talking aesthetically. Yeah. Like, the aesthetics yeah. uh, are are roundabout the same. Um, and it's a it's like a it's a per- particular kind of packaging and merchandising that makes these quirky idea ideas that would have been marginal acceptable to a greater whole. And it's like, yeah, and for your in your to your point, accessible to someone who shops at Hot Topic, right? So it's like an it's a it's a manner by which the bizarre is made accessible to the point where today now, like the mainstream teenager is like, you were talking about clicks earlier. It would be the mainstream teenager usually is like really, really quirky to the point of being almost like a bizarre eccentric 60 year old (laughs) from like the 1930s. I don't know if you hung out with many teenagers, but like, you know, a lot of, a lot of teenagers will fit into this. I don't know. Right after I finished grad school, which is like more than 10 years ago now, I went to this like and, and taught at this creative thinking camp. Um, it was like a creativity camp and it was all kids from New York. And I would ask the kids like, hey, like, what's your favorite movie? And these are like between six and 13 year old kids. And they'd be like, oh, of course, Hitchcock's Rear Window. It would be like the most obscure reference for like a 13 year old. I'd be like, what? And, you know, it's an extension of that idea that one's taste should be an accumulation of deep cuts and, and and I'm hoping this is a good transition into the music in this film which I think is actually like really interesting because it's the introduction of the playlist as a, like um, a movie as like an opportunity to sell through also a playlist but wasn't curate a, a Pulp playlist. Fiction already doing that yeah Pulp Fiction was that's a great example of another film that did it in this movie there's like a bunch of deep cuts like deep cut like maybe, in the, even the concept Pulp of Fiction is a good reference because it, it was also playing with all kinds of nostalgia yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. And somehow, uh, somehow, you know, I, I think it just comes down to personality. And I like narratives and jokes that are mean. I just do. <laughs> yeah. And so there's nothing mean in this movie. Like the, the meanest it gets is that he puts bees in Bill Murray's room and he gets a few stings. But <laughs> I love I that know. scene. <laughs> I love it. It's like a, it's a badass movie that's not at all badass. I think it's funny. But, um, I don't know. I what, love what's, Seymour. What's Cassell. really interesting to me is that I, I, I'm, I'm the opposite of. I don't hate the movie. It's not that I'm angry about it, but I just see it and I want to. I, physically, I just like I don't want to be here. It's like um, you know what the term is that people used to use, like. And they would refer to me this way too. Is like either emo or twee, right? It would be like, it's too cute. Oh yeah, yeah. It's too cute. Yeah. And you don't want to be caught in this little cute <laughs> film <laughs> because you're a tough guy. Tough guys drink beer and like break bottles, right? So, I, I'm I'm not like I I'm neither comfortable being cute or tough guy. I don't want to be characterized as either. I don't think you do. I you know neither do you. But I'm just saying like. If you like this film, then you are this person. Is what I think I'm hearing from you. And no, 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 I'm no, just no, saying, no, like, no. I, I, I'm, step, I'm trying to think of let, let's take because this this movie is is the archetypical. It explores quirky. Yeah, and maybe that's Napoleon right. Dynamite was exploring quirky and definitely there was definitely. an era of quirky. And yeah. I think there was also in music there was there was grunge first, but then maybe then it became more more indie and more something you could play at a dinner party and more agreeable and not too loud and uh, mm-hmm. there's a whole era of of craft DIY lo-fi folk uh, pleasant and all even this Michelle stuff. Gond- Michelle Gondre is of this era yeah. too where it's like, you know yeah 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 very, yeah and Spike Jones and all that stuff Spike but, Jones yeah like this really high polished stuff yeah and um, it, it, that's a good thing to talk about because this movie came a little bit after that wave of uh, highly publicized music videos, the auteur music videos. That's called yeah, that we referred to last podcast. Yeah, we didn't talk about Michelle Gondry. The three, last, the three last DVDs podcast. of Chris Cunningham and Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry. And I have to say, all those music videos really influenced me as far as what can you do with moving image and rhythm uh, in a way. There was a lot of new ideas in there. Mm-hmm. Like, like what it, were the new ideas? Um, like the way Michel Gondry, even though it's quirky and kind of stop motiony, but that he would take a full cast of dancers in a uh, mm-hmm. in a Daft Punk video and almost treat them as the way someone would treat particles in a generative piece of software. Yeah, it's like like you know how VJ software you can connect VJ software and like this light will respond to the hi-hat and this will respond to the kick drum and this will respond to the snare and he would just have dancers behave in a sort of computer-esque way and you can maybe trace that back to Merce Cunningham and uh, but I don't know as far as what was happening in music videos they were doing a lot of new stuff no yeah and I think the dedication to getting the spectacle right you know um, yeah and and music videos are known for you, you treat every shot completely you're in control of so much because it's so short like a movie you might have to just go with what happens but in a music video you have a lot of control but on a few occasions now you've kind of referenced this idea of like auteur uh, filmmaking and obviously we've talked about different auteurs like um and that term obviously people sometimes people uh, people would refer to wes anderson as an auteur filmmaker however 
they would not put him in the same class as other auteur filmmakers, right? He's Which, no Antonioni, no. I know, but like, uh, so I think that's an interesting conversation because it's like, why? And it seems to be based on like how cool the <laughs> and it, and he would be in the no. I, th- I think category. I think it also has to do with the um, uh, innovation mm-hmm. because we'll if you that. well if if you look at French New Wave uh, yeah. on the films and then you look at Wes Anderson you're like okay he took this and this and this and these those ideas that were radical in the late sixties right right and he took them and made a, a softer version he didn't make a, a he didn't make another leap. He didn't That's my take point earlier. Grand- That's your the, the point from earlier of like he he commercialized avant garde is more appropriate than. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it in a way, uh, George no Lucas always mentions that he started making art films. George Lucas he made these non narrative visual sequences. Starting with George Lucas. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I became a true artist on episode one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, no. I mean, it, this is always an ongoing battle of uh, uh, radicality and reaching people. And the, I, I think there, there are interviews with Francis Ford Coppola where he talks about, oh, I just made The Godfather. So then it, it was like a little commercial venture. So then I could save money so I could really make the films that I want to make. But then, So for him, yeah. The Godfather is just like a stupid little commercial thing. And then he makes these art films recently that are horrible and the, the godfather is actually way better well is it possible though to make to 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 take a risk and be radical with a lot of money or care you, you know what i'm saying like there, there's an interview with david lynch where he talks about he was asked to direct star wars part three at the time and but he declined mm-hmm. um which would have been interesting but, that would have been really but he, he's, he talked about the meeting he had with george lucas and he's like yeah george lucas and i are really the same we just really make the films we want to make Mm-hmm. It just happens that what George Lucas likes, many more people like than he does. Like, <laughs> like probably five billion people like George Lucas's taste. So what you're saying is, you know, the, yeah, these auteur filmmakers make films for themselves, and then based on their personalities, they either draw. There's a there's either a lot of other people like them, or yeah. there isn't. Yeah, person, I, I don't you know. think I don't think uh, uh, Wes Anderson is is bending over. To commercial wishes and then becoming something. It, I think maybe more with a movie, like a franchise movie, where you can replace every actor and director and you wouldn't even know the difference. Well, one that's thing a, that's yeah. what he does some weird stuff though. Like, so one of the things he does that <clears throat> I guess other auteur filmmakers has done is he always works with the same cast, right? Um, but it seems like he goes to extreme measures. And so, you know, I lo- we both love Bill Murray, right? Yeah. So I, I, I'm not, I'm not criticizing Wes Anderson no, 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 for no, selling out at all. That's yeah. not what my point. I, I, it's for me. The interesting thing is that it, I don't like it, but I can't tell you why. I know, but like, let's talk about Bill Murray. So we both like Bill Murray, and yeah, we both might actually even like Bill Murray in these Wes Anderson films. <laughs> Um, like actually, that might be the other thing that draws me to them. Um, but Bill Murray, you know, famously with has a, you know, to get in touch with Bill Murray, you have to like put a he has a like a telephone number and you have to leave a voicemail and he, he listens to the voicemails. Yeah, every he doesn't day have and, an agent; he just does it himself. Yeah, and he'll call you back if he's interested. But with with he only has one exception, um, where it's an automatic yes, and that's with Wes Anderson, uh, which I think is like 
pretty interesting. And when I listened to an interview with Bill Murray, and what he said was the reason he's excited to work with Wes Anderson is that he's a good writer and he takes great care in what he writes. He's very precise. He used the term like precision. And when you think of Bill Murray, you don't think of him as precise, but actually he does appreciate you know, the precision of the craft to a certain extent, because he's like, what he said in this interview, and he was like, I don't have to guess at what Wes Anderson's trying to do. I just know it's written right there on the page. So there's not very much like chance left to the direction. Like I can just, I can just nail it. Right. And so like Bill Murray was basically saying like, it's really easy to make a Wes Anderson movie, which I thought was kind of interesting, but, um, well, I also agree that, uh, if you work with people you love and you like what they do, that's better. So if he loves th- those movies, then it's well, pretty simple. And these movies are, were written, I think, with uh, one of the Wilson brothers, not with Owen Wilson, the other one. Um, you know, Owen I Wilson. I think with right? Owen Wilson. Oh, with, yeah. yeah, with Owen Wilson. Right. I always get them confused. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know. He's the guy from Zoolander. Yeah, blonde guy the blonde with crooked guy, nose. Hans or something. <clears throat> The other thing I've, I think probably about these Wes Anderson movies is that they're like, they're white people stories. And I know we haven't brought that up, but they're very like... I, I, I think you can't look at film history without seeing a bunch of white people stories. So that's a tough one. Like, yeah. It's pretty recent, more diverse. But, yeah, yeah. But in, that's why in, I think we're going to see the end of, of Wes Anderson's kind of like popularity. He has a new movie coming out. Um, I think about French New Wave cinema or something like that. Uh, but uh, like where he's satirizing it. And I think like at the end of the day, yeah. he's a com- he's a comedian or comic director. Um, and there aren't that many great uh, auteur comic or comedian uh, comedy directors. Um, and there's like, um, what's his face? Judge, right? Um, like Judge? Yeah. And then yeah. who else is there? Like that that fit into the auteur category. Well, some, someone was saying that woke culture killed comedy movies. What did? Um, work culture? Woke, oh, woke, woke culture. cancel culture. No, yeah. no, because of course there's Jordan Peele, who's the, a new great, he's a new auteur, right? And he's very Yeah, but his movies are, he's known as a, making comedy sketches, but his movies are not comic. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they're intentionally they? like they're horror comedies, like a mashup. Okay. And, yeah. But but it, someone was saying that the the type of movies like Anchorman and uh, Zoolander, you don't see many of those right now because there's such a risk of, of offending people. Yeah, it's not. It's not. Well, I don't think. It, I don't know if it's that so much as like that style of comedy isn't even really. There was no more room or new territory there, right? Like every era has. Hmm. That's where I'm saying I think probably Wes Anderson's tapping out too because like, you, you know, or another... <laughs> he had a good run. Yeah. Well, it's like now it's on TV. You know, it's like um, you could watch... Uh, you so know. maybe he'll make a TV show. Sure, yeah. But I don't. it's not It's not avant-garde to your point earlier about like the auteurs of the French New Wave were taking a lot of risks or, the, you know, whomever, right? So it's, yeah. it's no longer risk-taking. And of course, like, yeah. I, I'm not sure how long we can record movie podcast because you and I might both admit eventually that like film has reached its natural limits of experimentation. No, I think, I think, no, 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 I don't agree there. I think, uh, <laughs> okay, this good. has already been a good year for movies. Like uh, it, a lot of great movies came out and I, I think good things are happening. Yeah. But where, where do you see the limits of exploration right now? Oh, my friend had this remark, like no one has to invent, uh, 
a whole new concept for a song. It's like every 10 years you have to write a new love song because you can't fall in love with the, the love song that you heard before. Like you're a new generation. So mm. I don't think you even have to reinvent the wheel. It's just you live in a new time. and. Uh, mm. Well, I mean, it's interesting because this, like for me, this film, I watched it a little bit this morning before um, recording the podcast and I immediately felt relaxed and at peace again. It's like a, because of this, the nostalgia that I have for mo- both, being a teenager but also just like the way it's put together like um it's basically just it's like there's a lot of montage in the film so the pacing of it is just like it was like it's just very soothing um Hmm. i you know like what do you think of the the sort of male ego aspect of the film of him he thinks he's a genius he thinks he has a right to this woman's love like yeah and she she has a hard time getting it through to him it's like hey Falling in love takes two people. It's not just you deciding. And by the way, that was also relatively progressive for the time that she was like, um, she fends him off successfully. Like, you know, at one point she tackles him to the ground. And, you know, in a way, like both male characters, are, you know, they characterize um, them prior to Me Too as children, right? Um, so, you yeah, know, like they act of, adult, but they're actually self, children. Self-absorbed, they're not considering other people. Yeah. And then it's really the coming of age part of this story is like coming to terms with, you know, the world is more than, than your, your kind of narrow um, art directed expectations. And that's one of the reasons I like this as, out of all the Wes Anderson films to this day is that it seems to be the last time Wes Anderson was actually in control, you know, like where there was like, he was kind of on the, the knife's edge. Now everything is like, it is, it's almost like someone else wrote the film for Wes Anderson and then he goes out and makes it. Um, he's so like if you saw like Moonrise Kingdom which is a horrible horrible film it's like so bad like or some of his which one is that? like the one with the camp counselor and stuff it's just like it's boring it's like there a lot of them are even racist like just because like the the visuals and the the way the stories are written are so non-inclusive I don't know like I really don't like his like stuff anymore yeah the other thing that is interesting to me is like uh, I see the Wes Anderson movie and I'm like, oh, this is not cool enough for me. Mm-hmm. And and I know better. And then I watch the David Lynch film and then someone else might be like, oh my God, David Lynch is so mainstream and you got to know about this and this and this. And, yeah. Uh, I can't believe you look at a movie with a regular but, narrative. And but that's why I have all these I, levels I, of expertise. I think that's why it's just important to put this stuff in context. And our listeners are also like, you know, think, thinking maybe we're snobs or maybe not, you know, but like, when I was 18, I didn't have much exposure to anything except like electronic music. And frankly, it was like the prodigy and maybe like Aphex Twin, like no, no deep cuts on anything. Well, um, the, but those are not, uh, those are nothing to sneeze at. <laughs> sure. Maybe now, but at the time it was just like, that was pop culture in my eyes. And then, yeah, like but, this... but you, it, that was very innovative music by, by any objective measure. Yeah. And so, I mean, this film came along, it didn't like wow me on that level, but it wowed me on the level of as a young adult feeling like you felt heard. I felt heard. Yeah. And so I think like there's outside of the aesthetic value, there can sometimes just be this value of seeing yourself and the characters uh, displayed on screen. Um, that's it's, not it's easy funny to discount. That, that this topic of like feeling represented or feeling recognized and that's changing now because the, the two uh, Instagram stars that I saw in a cafe Mm-hmm. that were filming each other. We're both Asian-American. 
Yeah, well, they're very and, rarely and they, represented in film, too. Yeah, and they talked about, like, oh, I never watch TV because I just don't feel represented. And that's why they all moved to Instagram and following each other and having similar interests and similar backgrounds and similar frustrations and stories. And uh, But that's, so also, that's a, also how we ended up being friends, you and I. Like, honestly, yeah. a lot of the Internet artists that we know, we couldn't find um, a community in no. our local cities, and so we found each other online. And that happened to be where we were making the work anyway. One but... one of the ironic things about that, what you're saying is like, when I started uh, making art, the relational aesthetics things was huge. Yeah. And all the references were cinema. It's like a movie of Al Pacino and a documentary about the same event and an actual interview with a person who saw it. And it's like, oh, reality is different in a movie or in a reenactment or it, it, through the eyes of the person. And everything was through the lens of cinema. Mm -hmm. And growing up, I was like, come on, cinema is 100 years old. We've got better things to do. <laughs> and now I'm doing a cinema podcast. So that's ironic. Yeah. Well, I think like... What like like is, to your point of like, isn't yeah. cinema dead? Haven't we figured out all the topics and it just rolls on? No, I think it's it's Warhol eating a hamburger. That's the way I would characterize um, like, you know, the hamburger and ketchup and ketchup and French fries are never going to go away. And so it just becomes this thing that, you know, allows us to, uh, what would you call it? Like an anchor for other discussions, right? It's something that... Yeah. No one's going to argue that a hamburger doesn't taste great unless they're vegetarian. And then they'd be like, well, the Impossible Burger is pretty good. And I love portobello mushroom burgers, right? Like as a format, it allows us to anchor, you know, more radical exploration. And so I don't think that's and going to change anytime soon. Was it when was it for you that you started discovering video art? Um, well, like I said earlier, like when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with video technology and like digitizing video and like, yeah, you're like, and, and because of music, I think, and people like on Ninja Tune, like Cold Cut, who are like starting to use video to like cut up sound to make music and just like digital editing. So I started getting, but I didn't really know that video art existed until I was in university and a, my professor, Colin Campbell, who was like, just met me in the hallway and said, you should take my seminar. Um, he was like, there's this thing called video art. And then my mind was like blown for the next five years successively, like every year, <laughs> yeah. with, you know, cause I was familiar by the way, with the directors you mentioned, like Andre and Spike Jones and stuff like that. Cause I worked as an art director. I remember I mentioned when I was 17, but I actually worked as an art director in a music. It was video, almost like, but in a music you've video, had, you've had, it, uh, yeah. you've tasted Coca-Cola and all of a sudden someone put the syrup hose in your mouth and like, this is the, the concentrated stuff. Yeah. Because uh, the, the company I was working with, with when I was in a teenager was like a music video company. So the, all I would sit in the lounge with all the directors and they would like talk about, I remember them talking about that generic way video that we mentioned last podcast or the Spike Jones and they'd be like, Oh yeah. What do you think of that lens, man? What do that camera? <laughs> and so, and then, but so then it got more, you were exposed to even more politically radical. Yeah. Once art. I saw video art, you're right. It was like, Holy moly. Like, that woman is breastfeeding the camera or something like that. Just like every time. And no commercial motivation anywhere. And also the internet wasn't yet a video sharing platform. And so if you, like I remember getting access to this video library in grad school, which was in 2003. And it was like hundreds of archival tapes going back to the 1970s. And the amount of extreme stuff, like seeing Vito Conchi for the first time, the bazookas, like Martha Rosler, like Bill, uh, yeah, like Bruce Nauman, like all of these, like 
all of these cr- like crazy like Namjoon Pike. Yeah. Namjoon. I was like, what is this? Oh my god! Like they did it that. Is, like, it is really funny that the story of the the South Park guys that studied film and one of their teachers was Stan Brackage. Do you know his work? Of course, yeah, yeah. I also yeah. Hate, I hated Stan. And so Brackage, they named so. they named the character Stan in South Park, one of the four kids after Stan Brackage. And, uh, <laughs> okay. So they were exposed to all this radical video experimentation, and a lot of their movies were a reaction against that because in their context, the most obvious thing to do is make a, a black black and white film about uh, social inequality or something. Like, and they're like, you know what? We're going to do the opposite. Well, Sam Backage, though, of course, is, is was a filmmaker, um, not a video maker, right? Like he literally painted on the optical strip. So yeah. among among video it's, artists, yeah. Sam Brackage is like reviled as like, you know, the old school. He, he, yeah, but but he he's like he defined uh, yeah he, uh, visual experimentation in moving image. Yeah, it, yeah, you could argue film ended, you know, at Sam Brackage. Like that's when the media. Yeah, yeah but then it's ended. funny that he ended up as one of the four South Park kids. <laughs> That's hilarious. I didn't realize that story. It's true. Because yeah. you think of South Park, you think lowbrow for sure, right? That's yeah, point about so, but, but they were completely aware of, of the, these uh, high, high culture experiments. Hmm. Well, anyway, like... I, 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 that's, that's maybe... It's maybe it's nice to, to end with that yeah. a lot of people have a hard time defending what, what is the role of art. And then... Um, I saw a great talk by, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the name, I was at the New Museum, uh, Peter Saul. He, oh, he's yeah. kind of an absurdist painter with weird uh, stream of consciousness imagery. And he always likes to offend people. And so they asked, someone in the audience asked him, what is the art that offends you the most? And he said, oh, I hate art with good intentions that tries to make the world a better place. <laughs> <laughs> that's the most offensive but but to me what's interesting is that if if you look at art as fundamental research in the same way in science you can have fundamental research you're not sure what it's good for but you're going to do the experiment yeah yeah and then that seeps into culture and so that ends up in a Wes Anderson movie or as a South Park character or whatever yeah it gets repackaged yeah. that's yeah and so that's the interesting thing of for me of thinking art as a a laboratory free of practical concerns. The biggest, like, for the, for me, the biggest contradiction in my life, actually, is that, you know, by day working in business, it's really hard to propose a radical idea because people reject it immediately. And so I actually have to be an artist outside of <laughs> business hmm. um, for it, to, you know, and then those aesthetics, I mean, you've seen it in your lifetime. I've seen it, you know, several times as well like radical aesthetics eventually get repackaged as like MTV movie, you know, video clips, you know, which eventually get repackaged as um, commercials on television, which then get repackaged. Yeah, and at as some movies. point they come like they become corporate uh, educational videos. Exactly. Like, yeah. The, the, the weird videotapes, but Kinko's behind the scenes where they explain, you know, the, but those very, decisions seep yeah. in. It's very and much then like those decisions um, seep back into art because yeah. people are like, Oh, this is so weird. Yeah, artists are always responding. And I think it's just like water, you know, that graphic when they show you in high school of like this, the cycle of water, you know, like it evaporates, it go, you know, becomes a cloud, then it rains down, it grows a tree, and then it gets into the dirt, and then it evaporates again. You know, it's just that, like the, the carbon cycle or the water cycle. Yeah. We're just in this like culture cycle. And the site, you know, the argument, of course, that we're in is that we're in tighter and tighter cycles because the internet accelerates the um, rate of exchange. But 
you could also argue maybe that we're like the cycles don't exist anymore. There's just absolute chaos because they're so small that it's just a big scribble. But, um, you know, someone, yeah, this, so it's, it is weird to see like, maybe as like one final thought, like a a director like Wes Anderson make 20 years because we're more than 20 years after Rushmore now, 20 years of the same movie with the exact same aesthetic without much evolution at all. Um, Because if you watched Rushmore and then you watch his latest film that's about to come out, there is a there, it's so so strikingly similar aesthetically the way it's written he hasn't really challenged himself at all in that time he's, he's the mcdonald's of filmmakers you can always rely on it yeah it's not yeah. the best but you know you might be somewhere and you're just like i just need to i need to know that there'll be a certain uh, level of reliability yep 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 so there you go there's your your hamburger and fries <laughs> Um, yeah. So we'll move on to more experimental territory again in this podcast, but I just thought it was fun to go back. Yeah, and look I, 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 I want to watch an offensive movie with you so we can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll just figure it out. We'll figure that one out together. Um, or maybe we watch a, yeah. a one that's like, uh, I'll, yeah, okay, you can watch an offensive one. I'll try and find a movie that did change the world. That would be interesting because there are a few. You know, Rambo had a huge influence on Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> really i wouldn't mind going no, back I'm and watching rambo because it's a big part of my childhood but like uh, no it, it's funny like those type of movies i didn't know as a kid watching those movies that they're political manifesto <laughs> but it's all about like one guy can just solve everything well that's why we have like top gun coming out uh the new version yeah. with tom cruise still in the cockpit and you're like <laughs> <laughs> oh god Stronger than ever. Yeah. Look, maybe a story for another day, like another podcast on ideology and like history of filmmaking yeah. as it ties back to the ideologies that exist out there. Okay. And whether they're reflections or projections. Um, All right, yeah. people. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Oh, you know what? I think yeah. we had, thanks we for have the an feedback. Ad, before we go, did we have an ad that we forgot to read? And, and should we be apologizing? No. Let's do an ad for McDonald's. <laughs> but we did have an ad, didn't we? Didn't someone send an ad in? Uh, next episode i guess okay we'll put it in the next episode apologies to, yeah. <laughs> to our advertisers uh and this was just yeah we're gonna be we might take a small break because you're traveling where we're not sure and yeah, um we'll figure it out we'll figure it out and and see you back soon please do send your ad we will read them um and we will we do appreciate your notes we've received several notes over the last little while including a very thoughtful critique from one listener Thank you for that. And um, yeah, thanks again. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.